Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Welcome to a very special, slightly last minute bonus slash fill-in episode of The Next Picture Show. I'm Genevieve Kosky, here with my co-hosts. Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Hey, guys. And uh, we were originally going to get together tonight for a typical Next Picture Show pairing of Doctor Strange and 1990s Darkman. But due to some uh, scheduling issues and actually having seen Doctor Strange, we are now pushing that pairing a week and uh, changing Darkman to Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, uh, which, as it turns out, is a much better pairing with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. So make sure you come back next week as we kick off that pairing. But instead, today we are going to give you a little, you know, the bonus episode. This is the kind of thing we might usually do over on the Patreon. If you are not a Patreon supporter, we encourage you to uh, head on over there for lots of bonus episodes, such as this one, where we are going to uh, have a casual discussion of some of the standout films of the year so far for each of us. We've each brought three films that uh, have stuck with us this year for uh, one reason or another. And uh, we'll just, uh, no, no spoilers, we're just going to kind of get into our, our broad thoughts about it. And what has made them stick with us? A lot of these, I think, we've talked about on the either the main podcast or bonus episode. So we will definitely highlight when that is the case, so you can go listen in more depth. But with that said, let's just dive in. Tasha, will you kick us off with one of your best films of 2022 so far? Sure. I'm going to start with the really obvious ones and uh, let let the rest of them be a surprise rather than <laughs> letting people get all the way into the depths of this episode before getting to the obvious things. <laughs> My favorite film of the year so far, I don't think is going to surprise anybody. It's uh, the Daniels Everything Everywhere All at Once. I've written a zillion pieces about little breakouts of different aspects of this movie. I moderated a Q&A with them in Chicago where I got to just kind of chat informally with them before Beforehand. And I, I said, you know, it just it feels like practically every scene of this movie probably has a story behind it. And they said, yeah, it's it's true. I can't wait for the physical release of this movie and the inevitable director's commentary on it. I just think that there's a ton to unpack. Do you think we'll get a director's commentary? Do, do those still happen? It's going to. I mean, yeah, they've already talked about their their plans for it and about uh, what all is going to be on the physical release. They seem like the type of directors who would do a, a director's yeah. commentary, yeah, pa- perhaps sure. even, not even for their own films. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would straight up listen to the Daniels do uh, a commentary on the Batman or, uh, 
yeah, I don't know. Just uh, pick a random movie. Say anything. I would listen to the two of them talk about say anything for an hour and a half. Actually, I'd like to hear them on the Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. <laughs> oh my the, gosh, the crossover in subject matter. <laughs> that yeah, that would actually be uh, be pretty interesting. We talked about everything everywhere for uh, an hour plus already, so there's not a ton to say here. I will just say it's a film that rewards second viewings. It's a film that rewards like deep long conversations with other people about what they they got out of it. It's a multiverse movie that's just a kind of kaleidoscope of experience with a bunch of kind of moral messages about how to live your life packed under a whole bunch of fairly complicated dramatic storylines and comedic uh, action. So it's just it's a layered film. It's full of nuance. It gives back a lot. And as people are very slowly catching it, this film has made me, I think, more aware than I have ever been of the rate at which normal people actually watch movies, because I've been watching the movie pop up again and again on social media as my friends, as my coworkers, as, as family members finally get around to seeing it. And this kind of thing, you know, uh, film critics often see movies in advance for whatever reason and get very excited about them and talk about them and then are kind of done with them by, by the time they actually come out. And in this case, you know, I'm not done with it. I am ready to have conversations about it with all of these people who are eventually uh, getting around to experiencing it because they all come out of it really wanting to talk about it. That's one of the things about it that's been most delightful is just how much conversation it sparks and how much people who see it want to talk about it. Can I make a suggestion to anyone who has yet to see everything everywhere all at once? Don't edit an hour-long podcast about the film uh, full of spoilers before seeing it, <laughs> which was my experience. One of how did that play for you? It's such an interesting, compelling film that I think, like to a certain extent, it is spoiler-proof. Just like so much of what's interesting about it is in the execution. But I will say, I maybe came out of it a little less enamored than I may have been particularly sort of like the middle part. I won't get into any specifics, but I will say when a, a, an everything bagel comes into the equation, <laughs> um, the the film maybe dwells there a little longer than I, I was appreciating in, in the moment. Uh, maybe if I hadn't been prepared for it, uh, it, it might not have felt uh, as saggy as it did, or maybe it would have. I, there's no way for me to know. But I, it's a film I, I, I enjoyed quite a bit, and I did talk about a fair amount afterwards, but also like I had already listened to quite a bit about it. I feel so. like also there's there's things that you hear described that don't make any sense until you see yes, them with that movie. For sure. yes. You know, that movie, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. I over at the the reveal, the newsletter Scott and I do, I, I gave it four stars. And like since then, I was like, I've been underrating it. It's really good. It's really good. It's also, the, I will say this, it is also, I feel like I can come, I want to see it again prepared because it's exhausting, you know, mm. it, 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 it is, it's true. It's just, yeah, and maybe, and maybe that was like contributing to like how I was feeling in the, the middle part. I mean, like, as you guys talked about on the podcast, and I won't uh, get into because of the spoiler thing, like the way it ends, or some of the scenes toward the end are like very moving and touching. And I think like it comes together in a very satisfying way. There's, you know, and the beginning is great. It's just that middle part. It's a little saggy for me. And that's all. But 
Anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you actually uh, looked at the pieces that I did because there were so damn many of them and they came out pretty early in its life. But I did an interview with the directors where they talk about how that the dynamic of exhausting people is entirely deliberate. Mm-hmm. Like they wanted to ring people out. I so definitely they be... feel that. Yeah. <laughs> they talked about literally breaking people's brains. And, and, I, and, and I respect that. I didn't necessarily love it as, as a viewing <laughs> <Sure>. experience. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not offering it as an argument, like mm-hmm. in in the film's defense uh, against your response to it, which is perfectly legitimate. Mm-hmm. So much as I'm saying, your experience, the experience that that both of you had in terms of finding it uh, exhausting, it's not anomalous. It's entirely <laughs> deliberate, and I think a lot of other people are going to experience it that way too, because they they literally were out to exhaust people enough to make them receptive to some of the ideas in the movie well so it's not to uh likewise uh, exhaust our <laughs> listeners by, by dwelling on the first film out of the gate too long Let, let's move along keith hit us with one of your best films of the year so far i'm also going to go with an obvious choice and what it that's it's really kind of a throwback to uh late 2021 uh because that's when it ended up on on lists uh best of the year lists including mine although as with everything everywhere all at once i wonder if i underrated it now which is which is uh joaquin trier's uh the worst person in the world briefly it's it's a uh norwegian film about a young woman it's, it's really kind of the best description you can have but it's <laughs> about someone who uh, feels a little adrift a little bit of generational ennui not sure what she wants to do with her life it's all you know. It's about that. It's about uh, you know cultural shifts, generational shifts, and it's it's funny and inventive, and each section's a little different from the one before, and it's got a wonderful performance by Renata Rensev as as the main character, and Anderson Danielson Lee as as one of her two. Oh, the other guy's good too, but as one of her two uh, uh, love interests or, or partners that she changes uh, place between. He has a monologue. In this film, I won't spoil. Everyone who's seen it knows exactly what I'm talking about. I have thought about it uh, every day since I've seen this film uh, for the first since I saw it for the first time back in December. Uh, it hit me even harder the second time I saw it. Uh, great movie, uh, and and uh, you know, if anyone on this podcast, any of my co-hosts haven't seen it, they should probably correct that yeah, as soon as possible. I, I was gonna say this. This is maybe the movie I've been told most this year that I I should see because I haven't yet, and I, I swear I'm gonna get to it. It's but coming it's, out. On, there's a Criterion edition coming out uh, very soon, which means right, it, I saw that. Know, be more, yeah. be more widely available too so um yeah uh, and i'll just uh, just uh uh direct if our listeners who have seen it who want to go a little deeper i interviewed a norwegian film editor slash film critic for the reveal uh to like get into the, the oslo specific references because there's some like local references and that I, I that felt like very specific that i wasn't necessarily going to get as someone who's never been to oslo uh and and uh he, he was really quite revealing about about some of the, some of the um uh in jokes and and you know things that oslo residents are going to get the rest of us aren't interesting cool. Yeah, I would say it's very high on my list, but I'm I'm currently sitting on like three or four screeners of stuff that we have to evaluate for uh, show up upcoming shows in the next week or two. It just keeps getting pushed down, and I'm really eager to get to it. But I've been really eager to get to it for like a month now. Same here, and I guess before I get into my first pick, I will uh, 
give my my standard disclaimer that I am uh, generally much more behind on new movie releases than my co-hosts by virtue of uh, my day job requiring me to attempt to stay on top of the uh, unending deluge of new television. Um, so I am not getting to watch that many movies that aren't for the podcast uh, these days, although I do try to make time for one or two a week still. But in keeping with the trend of not surprising picks, <laughs> my first one is also a, a film we covered uh, quite in depth on the podcast, uh, and that is After Yang, Koganada's After Yang, um, which I know we were all, uh, all four of us, including Scott, who is not here, but we're all very moved by this film to different extents and for different reasons. But I think what has stuck with me the most uh, well, I mean, a lot about it has stuck, stuck with me since since seeing it and since our discussion. But I really like the image of it I have in my head is a scene that we discussed quite in depth on that episode, which is when Colin Farrell is using a sort of fancy futuristic sunglasses device to sort of probe the five second memories of Yang, the uh, AI nanny tutor figure to his child who breaks down early in the film and the uh, subsequently Colin Farrell's character uh, spends a lot of time kind of exploring what this life form was all about through its his memories, through Yang's memories. And that scene of him kind of going through this interface, this memory interface, I know it spoke to all of us in, in slightly different ways, but it stuck with me so much just as just a comment on the extent to which technology has infiltrated both our lives, our minds, and our emotions. You know, like, I, I feel like it's really rare to be able to like pull such deep human true feeling emotion out of like a quote unquote sci-fi premise, but it feels like such a human story and like it's a melancholy story for sure. I mean, it's essentially like a 90 minute morning, you know, practice, but it's not a grim film by any means. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to admit that this was my first Koganata. I hadn't seen Columbus uh, yet. I've actually since corrected that. But going into this, I was like familiar with people's thoughts on him, but I hadn't actually experienced one of his films before. And the tone of this film is just so unique. And the way that it's able to tap into the sense of melancholy without feeling like it's dragging you down and actually coming out of it with a sense of like uplift and hope, not to mention just like absolutely gorgeous and specific and unique visuals throughout. Like, I think it's a really, really special film. And it's one that I've been pressing on people. Uh, it, it has not gotten nearly the sort of buzz that uh, Everything Everywhere, for example, may have. But um, I think it's one that pretty much everyone I know who has seen it has felt a real connection to it. So After Yang is mine. If seeing Columbus inspires you to take a weekend trip to Columbus, Indiana, I I, I recommend you follow up on that. Uh, my wife and I did. It was really it was really nice. And yeah, I remember you you mentioning that. It sounds great. And we're like, those are the buildings from the movie. <laughs> And if seeing after Yang inspires you to grow moss in your cars and uh, eat a lot more Asian food, I encourage that as well. Yeah. I mean, I already love ramen a, a lot, but I, I could stand to love ramen more, I suppose. I don't uh, remember whether they uh, actually eat anything in the movie. It, my, oh, my there, there's memory a ramen of it, scene. Yeah, there, oh, there was. Yeah, where they're like both eating uh, Colin Farrell and, and his wife, played by Jodie Turner Smith. They're like having a video call and they both happen to be eating ramen, but they're separate. The marriage I mostly in that remember movie is also. Super interesting. 
There's the yeah, there's there's no um like long rhapsodic speeches and stories about ramen the way there is about tea in yeah. that movie. But Fair. uh I, I would I would sit still and listen to those characters describe ramen broth uh, for five straight minutes. Mm-hmm. Kind of everything in that movie is about small mundane moments and mm-hmm. like the power and importance of them in building a life, in building memories, in building humanity really so you know why why not ramen (laughs) why not ramen indeed all right well tasha give us your second pick uh, my second pick, again, is something that we talked about on the show. It's Mamaru Hasada's Bell, the animated take on Beauty and the Beast. And again, this is something else that we we talked about in at some depth. The imagery from that movie just really sticks with me, I think, more so than the ending, which, as we said, like goes to some kind of takes the whole story in some kind of strange directions. But uh, kind of the the early like hyper maximalist stuff that's sort of about the excess and wonder that you can put into a virtual environment where everybody is trying to have their needs fulfilled, uh, where in fact the environment is kind of designed to please everyone and give them what they want. Which all of which is meant to kind of mimic the internet and how everything that you want is out there on the internet somewhere if you can find it. Uh, just really sticks with me as a both a visual metaphor and as these just celebratory music videos that remind me of nothing so much as the work of Satoshi Khan. I really miss him as a filmmaker. I really wish that we'd gotten more out of him before his his tragic early untimely death. And I feel like Hasaru is just uh, the kind of the next best thing that we have in terms of putting out these like very phantasmagorical movies that shift through the bounds of like reality and fantasy and uh, kind of overwhelm the characters often, both with those shifts and with just the lushness and richness of some form of artificial life, whether it's magical or memory or, you know, in this case, an augmented virtual reality. Um, that they can go live in. This movie has just stuck with me in terms of its big emotions and its big metaphors, but more than anything, just its big visuals. It's probably the most beautiful film um, that I've seen in 2022, if nothing else. I will just like throw out there, like perhaps on a technicality, I think we actually talked about Bell in 2021, if I'm not mistaken. That um, is possible. It yeah. was it was one of a number of movies. And there's there are decisions that I kind of regret in terms of at Polygon, at least we put together a best of 2021 film list and we're we have a running best of 2022 film list now. And there was just so much leakage between the two of them conceptually in terms of there are so many movies that get a run, like a weekend long run in L.A. in order to qualify for awards in a given year and then come out in a way that the public could possibly see them in you know, February or March or April. Yeah. And you still have to contend with like, this is technically a 2021 release. I think I'm going to do all of that differently this year and just say until it comes out for the public, it's not out, you know, one, one awards qualifying weekend does not a movie make. And that is what exactly what Bell got was a, a tiny release in a couple of theaters in order to be considered for awards last year. But its actual release to like American audiences, at least, was in 2022. And now it's available digitally. It's available 
Actually, Tasha, I'll, I'll, I'll save you from having to further justify us because we did, in fact, cover it in this year, uh, in January. So I think it was actually our first pairing of the year. So uh, so we it is a, a 2022 film by Next Picture Show Standards officially, but it <laughs> was one that showed up on many 2021 lists or, or a handful of 2021 lists, I guess. The same is true of The Worst Person in the World. The same is true of another movie that I think we're going to discuss uh, in just a little bit here. So I, I don't know. One way or the other, most of the films that we're discussing now may have been in one or two theaters uh, last year, may have been on awards lists last year. But this was the year that they actually became available for most of the people listening here to see. And most of them are available on uh, streaming or, or digital now. So most of these are, if not all of these, are going to be films that you could actually watch now. I guess some of them are still in theaters, but one way or the other, these are films that are available to you, which they largely would not have been uh, in December when the best of the year lists came out. Films for you. That is why we are here. Keith, <laughs> what is your next pick? I, I, this is one that, that squarely debuted in 2022. We covered on the show, but I wasn't on it. So now I get to talk about <laughs> Kemi, uh, the Steven Soderbergh film, uh, which is kind of written by David Kep and starring Zoe Kravitz. And it's kind of a throwback to sort of, you know, 70s style conspiracy uh, thrillers, but very much a, a 21st century version of that, if, if only by the virtue of, of the fact that it's in, based around internet technology uh i i you know i don't i'm sure i'll end up repeating a lot of things that that were said on the on the show but i think kravitz is really great in, in the lead in this and, and it is just really tightly plotted in a way where you know, there's a scene again the spoilers but the scene at the end where like various plot elements just play off like you know like a slot machine it's like oh wait i i you've been pumping coins into these various elements of the film and here they are all just kind of kind of playing off this, this great uh, climax uh no i think it's really i think it's a really cool movie uh it's on hbo max so it's kind of one i wish i had a chance to see in theaters but uh, such are the times we live in and now that you have uh, talked about Kimmy, I can note that uh, Scott Tobias, who was not able to join us tonight, he did say that the picks he would have brought would have been after Ying and Kimmy. So uh, we have officially covered uh, Scott's picks as well for any who might have been curious. And I think Tasha and I were maybe a little less enamored of, of Kimmy than than Scott on, on that episode, but I'm, I'm glad that it has another booster in, in you, Keith. Um, I mean, I think most people were less enamored of Kimmy than than Scott was because Scott adored it. I mm -hmm. mean, he he was just through the moon for that movie. And a lot of critics were. I, I think that there was in the, the cold, dark days of what, February when it came out, there was just a, a feeling for a lot of people of this is short and fast and colorful and energetic and fun. And a lot of people, I think, <laughs> maybe maybe liked it more than it deserved because it was all of the things that cinema was not being for them at that moment. Don't Wait, tell harsh, me why Tasha. I like something and why I don't like something. I just like it. <laughs> context it's important but and i i don't i actually don't mean to undersell anybody who has that response to it you know any more than i think that if you like ice cream more on a hot day in summer you don't really like ice cream or you don't properly like ice cream you know a, a thing like that it. hits you at the right moment and in the right way is uh still an awesome thing alternately i just enjoyed the movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, but you like a, ice cream. There's another explanation for this, which is I thought it was a very good film. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, anyway, carry on. 
Well, I mean, to, to Tasha's point, I'll I'll bring in my next pick, which is uh, one that I, I, I obviously liked very much as I'm about to talk about it, but also did very much hit me at the exact right time and gave me that kind of ice cream jolt that I had not yet been feeling yet by early March when it came out. And I am talking about Pixar's Turning Red, directed by Domi Shi. Tasha and I uh, went pretty in-depth on Turning Red on a bonus episode over on the Patreon. So there's another incentive for you to head over there uh, if you haven't before. But this was this is my favorite Pixar in quite some time, I think. A lot was made when it came out uh, about like the fact that it has like it talks about periods there's in like the whole thing is like can kind of like be read you know a little bit as a period metaphor but really it's just about puberty it's about growing up it's a very like pixar story in in that it's about you know a child coming into adulthood and and selfhood and of course butting heads with a parent which is as tasha and i discussed on that episode of perhaps overly common trope although we we go listen to it on the patreon we we get it we get into it but <laughs> But the main character, Meili, who is a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian girl uh, in uh, Toronto circa 2002, which is just like a wonderful setting and time period for this film. And there's a lot of really fun uh, detail uh, related to, to that time and place throughout. But she is... She's a good student. She has friends. She wants to please her mom, but she's also like a weirdo in a way that I really loved. You know, like I feel it's so rare, although increasingly less so, to get like teen girl characters who are just kind of like weird and off, even off putting a little bit. Uh, Tina Belcher is sort of the the quintessential example for me and someone that another character that I thought about a lot during Turning Red, which I guess I should mention sort of the central conceit of it is that May, along with uh, as she discovers the women in her family have uh, ability slash curse to turn into a giant red panda when excited or angered. And that sort of informs the the arc of the film, um, which I don't need to get too uh, far into because it's fun to watch play out on its own. But, you know, just as far as this being a Pixar story, it felt like it had that sort of, you know, central Pixar emotional core, but in a developed way, in an evolved way. You know, again, in the the setting and the cultural milieu, milieu uh, in it being a female main character, like these are all kind of evolutions for Pixar that it was nice to see handled so well in, in Turning Red. And the the climax, sort of the, the big final act I, which I, again, do not want to spoil, but I think it was just like a delightfully handled um, and just a really fun spectacle. So yeah, I, I love Turning Red. I think probably everyone who listens to this podcast has probably seen it. But if you haven't, correct that very soon. It's on Disney+. Plus. It just occurred to me, and I should have, you know, if, I, if we'd recorded this podcast before, I wrote it, but I wrote a review of the, of the Finnish horror film Hatching, which is kind of like the nightmare body <laughs> horror version of this. It's very much another puberty metaphor. Uh, it really, with, with, really with monsters, is. You know? uh, yeah. the, the difference there being that the the part of her that is a monster that she's ashamed of and embraces is external rather than mm-hmm. something she 
literally physically becomes. But otherwise, I'm right there with you. It's it's kind of the same metaphor. It's just a much, much bloodier version of it. It's, I, I like Hatchie, but I also think Turning Red's a superior film. <laughs> yeah, so Turning Red is, uh, is very polished and uh, very, very fun. And I just keep coming back to the, there's a, a musical bit towards the end where a couple of different elements fall together mm-hmm. that's maybe one of the things i've i've just remembered most in cinema this year that i just keep coming back to a kind of like blending of cultures and and generations and energies all wrapped up in in one big scene in a way that i just find really enjoyable really delightful yes. uh, turning red has become a, an interesting flashpoint for controversy uh, since we we talked about it on the podcast not so long ago probably everybody listening to this is at least somewhat aware of the capital b capital t bad take that a, a oh, certain of course. managing editor wrote that became kind of a flashpoint for the film because he dismissed it as like unrelatable and and exhausting and uninteresting because it wasn't about literally he said you know there was nowhere for white men like him in this movie and therefore nobody could possibly relate to it unless they were canadian chinese uh, and had been 13 year olds in toronto but it sparked a really interesting conversation about relatability in cinema and like who stories are for and how stories are told and i found the dialogue that came out of that to be just really interesting and helpful and hopeful in terms of, you know, people maybe expanding the horizons a little bit in terms of what they find interesting in cinema. And then there was another big debate, I guess, about whether it was appropriate for younger kids to hear about periods or to see jokes about menstruation or (laughs) to watch movies even in which uh, a kid strikes out against their parent this way, which was a weird conversation to have given how many times that happens, particularly in Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's been really interesting to follow the conversation around Turning Red and, and just see like how much people have resisted it in ways that they don't seem to resist other animated movies and how much people have had to go to bat for it. It's The conversations have been really interesting. I admit I, to a certain extent, tapped out of those those conversations because I found or a lot of the ones I saw were like in very bad faith and just like made me roll my eyes. The The menstruation thing still makes me roll my eyes, um, not to mention that that horrible take. So I didn't necessarily see some of this follow up uh, conversation. Maybe it would be heartening. But, you know, to, to go back to, to Keith's thing, it's just a good film that I liked, you know? <laughs> I'm <laughs> you know, sorry of I keep trying to make people think about the context of movies. Well, in Scott's absence, I will point out that that's all extra textual, Tasha, and move us right along to your third pick. Well, you guys can feel free to tell me about the uh, controversies about this film that I don't know about or why I truly <laughs> like it because of when it came into my life. But uh, this one, at least, is going a little further off the beat path. Maddie Doe is considered to be the first Lao horror director. She's also the country's first female director, period. And she's made a couple of different horror movies that I have not seen and that I regret having not seen. Dearest Sister is on Shudder, so it's fairly readily available. Her first, which I'm not sure how to pronounce, Chen Halley, Shanthali, she posted herself on YouTube, so it's it's available free. And uh, my only excuse for not getting caught up is, again, 
a lot of other films I need to watch. But The Long Walk definitely made me aware of what a, a huge and enthusiastic reputation she has enjoyed and probably why. It's a story that takes place in a couple of different timelines because it's a time travel story. The One of the timelines takes place in the semi-near future. People are using uh, small available technologies that maybe are slightly reminiscent of after Yang in that they're like well integrated into people's lives and they, they seem relatively subtle. But the main character is also traveling back into his own childhood and reckoning with some of the things that happened there uh, around a family member. There are implications that he has undergone a series of traumas and a ghost that's the spirit of a woman who was one of those traumas is helping him navigate back and forth in time. From what I've read, um, Maddie Doe's movies in general um, have a tendency to interact with uh, the supernatural in the spirit world, very specifically in ways that would make sense to like Lao viewers, maybe more so than us. You know, just a, a culture where spirits are assumed to be just part of the, the physical landscape and kind of like part of the environment that everybody navigates. This kind of uh, like dense time travel story doesn't seem as supernatural in a culture where spirits are are common. And she's talked a bunch about this in interviews. It's it's pretty fascinating to listen to how she talks about this film and how it navigates memory and and trauma and experience and and choices. But it is also a horror film in ways that I really don't want to spoil. It's also a science fiction film. It's also a ghost story. It's also a thriller. It's just a whole lot of things layered on each other in a really interesting way. And they all come together for what I thought was one of the the best movie endings of the year. So Maddie Does Long Walk, I would say maybe the strongest possible introduction to her work if you're not already familiar with her. And one of these days, I'm going to get caught up on the rest of her work. Well, I don't think Keith nor I can uh, question uh, whether you are liking that film correctly uh, or not, because we haven't seen it. (laughs) So uh, I guess we will just uh, move right along to Keith. What's your last pick for us? I can can segue a little bit because of of the many many things mentioned (laughs) about that film. I heard time travel. Uh, (laughs) So my my last one was kind of about time travel, but more of a sort of a a gentle folkloric kind of way, if that's the right word. It's uh, Celine Sh- uh, Shyama's Petite uh, Maman, the director of, of uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire that we covered uh, on the show, uh, which we all uh, loved. And I think when everyone catches up with this one, they'll, they'll love it too. It is a, a, a short film uh and not not technically a short it's 72 minutes long so it is a feature but it's 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 not in any way wispy or insubstantial it's it's just kind of a you know the film is like power kind of creeps up on you uh i'll just briefly describe the plot it's about uh, a little girl named uh nelly who goes with her mother and her father's already there to clean out the home of her recently deceased maternal grandmother um her her mother departs for reasons that are never really explained and um nelly wanders into the woods uh to a area where her mother used to play when she was a child and meets a girl that looks a lot like her it's actually played by by the actress's uh twin sister it is josephine and gabrielle sounds and eventually becomes aware that she's actually interacting with her mother at the same age she was and it's a very gentle film with like lots of you know fun humorous 
moments, but I think it's also pretty profound uh, at the moment you recognize that your parents are human and fallible and that they're, uh, they were once kids like you. It's wonderful stuff. I, and I recommend checking it out. And I have a little like addendum to this as well. Another film I liked a lot was called Parents 13th District, which is the new Jacques Oldiard film as adapted from a series of, of stories by the, the graphic novelist, cartoonist, Adrian Tomine. And Shiyama is one of the, the three screenwriters that worked on it. But it's it's a really good film, too, about three lives, four lives, really, that, that – uh, Cross and intersect in the 13th arrondissement. Uh, my French is terrible. Uh, of of uh, <laughs> Paris, uh, just lovely, striking black and white photography. Uh, actually, a nice companion piece to worst worst person in the world because it's it is, uh, it is quite a bit of generational ennui and and sexual frankness in that as well. So that's kind of two recommendations in one. I recommend seeking them both out. I am still really curious about Paris 13th District because. When I when I first got a press release for it, I went and got the graphic novel that it's supposedly based on or that inspired it. And I cannot figure out what the connection is. Um, having read those stories, mm-hmm. which are, gosh, remind me of uh, people like Jeffrey Brown or um, Daniel Klaus, almost not not artistically, but in terms of discomfort and awkwardness and, and just a focus on the kind of hateful foibles of people who kind of get stuck inside their own head and like make life unpleasant for everyone around them. I, I've read the the summary of Paris 13th District and seen the trailer and I, I just can't find the connection in there. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Uh, so one of these days, I've really got to watch the movie having read the graphic novel. Yeah, I mean, you should. It's definitely about there's definitely a lot of people behaving towards each other and toward themselves in ways that may not be all that productive, but it's not a, I don't, I don't actually don't think a tone, the toning stuff I've read is this either, but it's not, it's not a cynical or, or, you know, uh, mis, a misanthropic film uh, at all. It's, 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 uh, quite not that. So I uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. It's, it, it's, uh, worth your time. All right. Well, I will uh, bring us home with my final pick, which uh, we uh, actually Tasha and I recorded a bonus episode for the Patreon on this, but I have yet to finish editing and posting it. Uh, it got bumped for for some other things. Uh, but uh, in the not too distant future, uh, you will be able to hear us talk at, at some length about Joe Wright's Cyrano, which uh, hit theaters very briefly in February. It didn't seem to make a, a whole lot of of impact. But we talked about uh, doing it uh, on the podcast, which I was really eager to do mainly as an excuse to pair it with my beloved uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Joe Wright's version. Uh, But after seeing Cyrano, which is, uh, of course, an adaptation of uh, the play Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, this is actually a direct adaptation of a 2018, I guess, revival uh, written by Erica Schmidt, um, starring uh, Peter Dinklage as uh, Cyrano de Bergerac. But af- and after having seen it, like it is a it's actually a much better pairing with Wright's Atonement. Uh, I had forgotten that there is a pretty strong war uh, element uh, in, in, in Cyrano, which the last act of the film uh, handles in, in really interesting fashion and actually uh, surprising to me uh, includes some of the most emotional moments of the film uh, for me, uh, which was a surprise as uh, we've talked about on this podcast before. Uh, 
war narratives rarely hit me in an, in an emotional place. Um, so that was a surprise. What wasn't a surprise was that I loved a Joe Wright film. Um, I am a bit of a Joe Wright apologist, although I'm, I'm heartened to have discovered that I am not alone in my admiration for, for Anna Karenina as I, as I thought I was. But I mean, it's kind of amazing that this is his first like full musical. He's just like a director that seems very primed for it. I mean, he's kind of a natural inclination toward uh, melodrama and and spectacle. Uh, what's interesting about this as a musical is that it uh, the music is written uh, by the National. And uh, if you're at all familiar with the National, you will uh, definitely be able to hear them. I, I saw this movie with my husband, who had no idea of a sort of its background. And midway through one of the songs, he leaned over to me. He's like, "This sounds just like the National." Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. And Peter Dinklage, in particular, is doing a, a pretty uh, clear Matt Berdinger uh, homage, I guess, in, in his singing. So, if you are a fan of the National, that is sort of a, an, an added treat. But, but really, what the appeal here for me is uh, the the filmmaking. I, like I've, ne- it's a little bit of a, an odd screen musical. The spectacle is so cinematic, yet it feels like you can feel the bass in stage convention in a way. It, it's a really, I think interesting and unusual sort of stage to screen exercise that kind of pays homage to to both media and it kind of just becomes its own interesting thing like i i don't really have another like screen musical i could like easily put it up against but like i said i could easily put it up against atonement and i'm kind of sad that we never did that pairing so uh maybe that's a a double feature uh you at home could could check out uh, Cyrano. It's, uh, as I understand it, uh, pretty widely available for digital rental now. And as I said, I promise I will get that bonus episode up on the Patreon soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to say too much about it here, uh, given how much we talked about it there and given that I want to encourage Genevieve to get that up. But uh, it's it's so lush, you know, it's so lush in its emotions, in its visuals, in its songwriting, in its performances. It's just layers upon layers upon layers of it's like a, a giant marzipan cake of sorts. Um Except that it's very, very bitter because it's about uh, the tragedy of of unrequited love and cowardice. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I highly enjoyed it. Uh, hmm, is that the word for it? <laughs> it made me feel. It made me feel very, mm-hmm. very strongly, and I admired it. Uh, maybe I didn't love it. Maybe yeah. if if I loved it, I didn't love it in the right way. But uh, it's it's melancholy as hell, and it sent me into a bit of a funk. So maybe like isn't the right word, but I think it's a very strong film. So yeah, and I get and I guess we, we all hate this movie, then, right? That's what, that's what we come here. <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I guess I should add the caveat. Like, even though I'm talking about it here, and one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite films of the year, and, and and it was, but it is not by any means a perfect film. There are definitely as as Tasha and I talk about in that conversation that you will one day be able to listen to like it, there are some some bum notes as it were uh the opening number is a little odd. it's quite odd actually um and I think uh, maybe just prepare yourself to to have a, a bit of a furrowed brow during the first uh, musical number, but it really does kind of get into its groove as as it progresses. So uh, the first musical number was honestly one of my favorites. So yeah. your mileage I, may vary. <laughs> yep, and. 
please let us know how your mileage varies on Cyrano or any of the films we've talked about. Hit us up at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to chat about any of these films or uh, any films that we we may have missed uh, from 2022 with the caveat that of course we missed some. Uh, We we are working on it and we have lots more movies to see uh, this year and talk about on the next picture show, which uh, we will do beginning again next week with uh, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Uh, until then, Keith and Tasha, thanks for joining me. This was, was fun. It, it now was I gotta go pleasure. watch some movies. All right, talk soon. <laughs>